Well, church, please open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, and preschoolers are now dismissed to re-enter the old preschool classroom that has not been used for a while. So you guys get the, get the big room. So enjoy it. Go crazy. Run around in there. Got plenty of space. But for everyone else, Romans, Romans 13 is where we're going to be at. And uh, I hope that this has been a good morning for you uh, thus far. I'm not sure what your morning routine looks like, but I would guess that there are things you do in the morning that you don't necessarily do in the evening when you're going to bed. Now, there might be some things we do both times, like brushing our teeth. That's probably a good thing to do both in the evening and in the morning. But there are some distinct things that we specifically do in the morning time because it is the morning. Uh, In the morning, we typically get dressed. We put on clothes that are acceptable to wear in public. And by the looks of all of you, you've done a good job. You know, you've, you've, this is acceptable. You know, we put on clothes to go out of the house. Whereas in the evening, we get undressed and we put on pajamas. We put on comfortable clothes around the house. In the morning, we open up the blinds and the curtains if we are fortunate enough to be able to sleep till the sun has risen. And if you've gotten up before the sun's up, you turn on lights. Whereas in the evening, we close the blinds and the curtains, and we turn the lights off. In the morning, some of you drink coffee or tea. You get a little caffeine in your body, whereas you probably don't do that in the evening because that would be troublesome for you to go to sleep. I don't know what your mornings look like, but I'm sure you've got your own little routines that you do in the morning time. Your alarm clock or the sun has told you that it's time for a morning and it's time to get up and you do certain things because that's what time it is. Church, this morning, God's word is going to help us see what time it is. God's word is going to tell us that it is time to wake up. And therefore, it's time to change. It's time to live in the light. You'll remember a couple of weeks ago, in the start of Romans 13, we learned about God's government and the different spheres of authority that he has put into place to rule his world. We saw ultimately that Jesus is Lord, and of the increase of his government, there will be no end. For after his death and resurrection and his ascension, he he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he's now there ruling and reigning until the day of his return. And that whole governing authorities thing at the start of Romans 13 was sandwiched between Paul teaching us about love and what it looks like to love one another and to even love our enemies. And he's now going to bring us back to that topic of love, but we're going to consider it from a little bit different of an angle. We're going to consider what it looks like to live and love as ones who have been awakened by the risen Son of God. Oh, for you see, church, the Son, Jesus Christ, has risen, and he will continue to rise until the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We're going to see this morning, church, that the night is far gone and the day is at hand. 
And therefore, let us awake from our slumber and our apathy and our complacency and let us live and love as ones who have been awakened by the risen sun. People are waking up to the risen sun. Have you noticed this? We're hearing reports of this from different places in our country and We're praying that real spiritual fruit will result and that lives would be changed and transformed, that the love of Christ would transform his people and draw people to himself, that the Spirit of God would help us see what time it is. And so that's where we're going this morning with the sermon. Let's pray and ask for God's help that we might wake up this morning and that the light of his Son would shine upon us. Let's pray. Father, our lives depend upon a true understanding of your holy word, who Christ is, and what he has accomplished for us. May you therefore grant that our hearts and minds, they they would be undistracted this morning. That we might hear and understand your word with all diligence and faith. That we might be able to rightly discern your gracious will for us. And that we would cherish it and live by it with all sincerity to your praise and honor. We ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord, and all God's people said, amen. Well, we're picking up things in Romans 13, verse 8, but look just a verse uh, back in Romans uh, 13, verse 7 to get the context here. Romans 13, verse 7. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Verse 8, owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, Paul's point here is not to prohibit all types of debt and loans, as some have used this verse to say that it is sinful to have a mortgage or things like that. No, that's not what he's saying. For for there are places in Scripture where God instructs his people in the proper use of loans and debt and investments. And God's word does give us instructions on how to do that, that you should not loan or borrow money in a way that is exploitive or oppressive. And certainly some types of loans today could be viewed in those categories, depending on the interest rate and who's the one doing the loaning. But the point here is not to say that you can't have a mortgage. The sub-point here is that you should pay what is owed to people. You should pay your debts. You shouldn't take on debt if you don't have a reasonable plan to pay it back. It's good to pay people what you owe them. So that's the sub-point here. But the primary point is that there is a debt that you should always owe to people 
and that is to love them. There is a debt that you should always owe to people, and that is to love them. If the sun has risen and if he shines his light on you, there is a debt that you will always owe people, and that is to love them. Well, how are we to love people? What does it look like? What does that mean? Well, we started to learn this in Romans 12, didn't we? Look back at Romans 12, verse 9. We, we learn things that our, our love is to be genuine, that we are to hate evil and hold fast to what is good. We should outdo one another in showing honor. We should be constant in prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints and seeking to show hospitality. But here now in Romans 13, we learn about this sense of urgency and obligation that we should have in loving others. Because, I mean, think about what it's like to, to have a debt. Even if, it's a, even if it's on a very small degree. Let's say you borrowed 20 bucks from someone in here, from a friend. That's probably something that's on the forefront of your mind when you see them next. You know you owe them something, and you have this sense of urgency and obligation to want to pay them back quickly. Isn't there this motivating pressure you have when you owe someone something? Coming out of PA school at Butler, Britt and I, we had a significant amount of student debt. And it was really motivating to want to pay it off. And so when the opportunity arose to pick up extra shifts at the hospital, hospital or to, to work extra hours or to work holidays for extra pay, I'll be honest, it was not my love of medicine that motivated me to pick up those extra shifts. It was because I knew I had a debt that was owed, that I was wanting to pay back. In fact, one of the doctors that I used to work with, he would always walk into work kind of in a marching fashion and, and sing, I owe, I owe, it's off to work I go. Maybe that's some of you as you go to your jobs, right? This is your motivating pressure. You know that you owe and you want to pay off the debt. Now, praise God when we can experience the relief of paying back what we owe. But as ones who are living in the light of the risen sun, there should be one thing that we feel like we always owe the people around us. God's word says, owe oh, no one anything except to love each other. Every person that God puts in front of you, you owe them something. You owe them love. Take for a second, look, look, look at the people around you. I want you to make eye contact with some people around you. Make eye contact with people around you. To your left, to your right, behind you. Look around. Make sure you're making some eye contact. These are people that you owe something to. Now, some of you do owe 20 bucks, and you need to pay up today and make it right, all right? No one owes me, so this isn't like a personal, I'm not using this for personal gain, but if you do actually owe someone, you should, you should pay them back, or, or, or uh, they should graciously forgive it, or something. Let's make it right today. 
But those people that you looked around, you made eye contact with, you, there is something that you should always owe them. There is a sense of urgency and obligation you should feel to want to pay them and give them. That same feeling you had when you owed someone 20 bucks, that same feeling I had when I had student debt, that's how we are to feel in giving love to one another. We should have a sense of urgency and obligation to love one another well. And here in Romans 13, we learn, as we do in plenty of other places of Scripture, like 1 Corinthians 13, that we do not get to define what it means to love one another. God gets to define what it means to love one another. God's word defines what it means to love one another. And here Paul gives some examples from the Ten Commandments. If you think about the Ten Commandments, the first four are really all about how we are to love God. The last six are about how we are to love one another. And here are some ways that we love one another. He lists them. He says, we don't commit adultery. And Jesus expounds upon this in the Sermon on the Mount. says that we're not even to lust after someone. He says we love one another when we don't murder. Might seem like an obvious one, but Jesus expounds on that as well and says that we're not to have murderous hearts. We're not to be angry or bitter with one another. We love by not stealing. We love by not stealing someone's reputation, by slandering or gossiping about them. We love by not coveting. Love is the fulfilling of the law. Love does not throw out the law of God. Love fulfills the law of God. And John Stott, great theologian, he once uh, said this. We were having some technical difficulties. Oh, we do have it. We were having technical difficulties, so we were not sure what would be up on the screen. but, But this is awesome. Okay, John Stott, you see it. Here's the quote. Love needs law for its direction while law needs love for its inspiration. You see how these two work together. Attempting to follow God's law and his word without love is just an empty moralism, and it's not what God wants from us. He ultimately wants us to love him and to love others, and his word shows us how we are to love him and love others. And I do think that we need a better understanding of what it means that love fulfills the law, what it means that Christ fulfills the law, and therefore, after we finish our series in Romans, before we jump into our next book, I would like to take 10 weeks and and preach through the Ten Commandments for us to help us see God's heart in these commandments? What do these commands reveal to us about God? What do they reveal to us about ourselves? How do they point us to Christ? And so we're we're kind of winding down our Roman series. That's where we're headed next. But back to Romans 13. Oh, no one anything except to love each other, and love is defined and directed by God's word. Now, why don't we do this better? Why don't we love one another better? If we're honest, we many times we we stink at showing love to one another. 
Well, you see, many times you love people the way you believe God loves you. And many times we have a wrong view of how God loves us. And therefore, we try to pay what we owe to others with an empty bank account because we are not experiencing and enjoying the love that God offers to us through the risen Son. Jesus said in John 13, 34, he said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Some of you struggle to love others because you are trying to love people in a very selfish way. You show love to them as long as you can get something in return from them. And therefore, when someone stops giving you what you were wanting from them, you decide to stop loving them. And the saddest thing about that is, I mean, not only does that destroy friendships and marriages and churches, but the saddest thing about that is that's probably how you think God loves you. Like he's just trying to get some obedient service out of you. But when you stumble, he gives you the silent treatment and pushes you to the side. Church, that's how people living in darkness try to love others. That's not how people living under the risen sun love one another. Some of you struggle to love others because you can't forgive others. Now, I'm not saying it's easy to forgive, but some of that struggle to forgive comes from either you wrongly believing that God is still holding your sins against you, or your struggle to forgive comes from you wrongly believing that you didn't really have that bad of sins that needed forgiven. And therefore, as long as we live in the darkness, believing that God has not really forgiven and let go of our great sin, or believing that we really didn't have much sin for him to forgive in the first place, as long as we live in that darkness, we'll never be able to fully enjoy walking in the light and loving and forgiving one another. And so, church, let me remind you what we've already learned in Romans, Romans 5, verse 8. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Wake up. Wake up. Oh, you who struggle to show love to others. Wake up and see the love that God has shown to you. See the risen sun. Let the light of the gospel shine on your darkened understanding of what it means to love. God did not show you love just to get something out of you. 
He did not show you his love because you were worthy of it. He loves you because he loves you. He loves you because he chose to love you. Will you look to him and receive and experience and enjoy his love? It's the only way that you'll be able to truly love others. Will you wake up and choose to love others with a sense of urgency like God has chosen to love you? If the sun has risen on you and woken you up to the love of God displayed through Jesus Christ, then look around and see that you owe something to those around you. And it's time to change how we love. It's time to have a sense of urgency and obligation in how we love one another. Wake up, church. Where's our sense of urgency and obligation to love one another? Where's our sense of urgency and obligation to love our neighbors? May we sit in and enjoy and experience the love of God demonstrated to us through the personal work of Jesus Christ. And may that awaken us to have a sense of urgency and obligation to love others. If you are struggling to love others, listen, you need some divine light therapy. Okay, light therapy. It's a, and I'm not talking about infrared light. I'm not talking about sun lamps light. If you live in Indiana, you might need those things because we haven't seen the sun. You know, we go periods of time without seeing the sun. But I'm talking about sitting in the presence of the light of the world and enjoying communion with him. If you have a love problem, you need the divine light of the world to sit with him and to enjoy him. In fact, it's enjoying and experiencing the light of the world that helps us know what time it is. It helps us us realize what time it is. And knowing what time it is helps us know what we are to do and what we are to be about. And so there are some, some neuroscientists now that are highly encouraging people to get sunlight in that first hour when the sun rises. Because they say that that first hour when the sun rises, the, 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 the light rays and the wavelengths and all this stuff's going on that our body needs to regulate our home, hormones, help us wake up, help, help our metabolism get going, and help get ready for the day. There's really good uh, uh, evidence that good things happen when you get that sunlight in that first hour of the day. They also recommend that you get sunlight in that last hour of the day as the sun sets. Because as the sun is setting, this is also helping our body get in tune with with getting ready to go to bed and to go to sleep. Getting in the sunlight in the morning, getting in the sunlight in the evening, it's helping us know, our bodies know what time it is. And when we know what time it is, that helps us know what we are to do. Are we to be waking up and getting ready for the day? Are we to be winding down and shutting things down? And we now see here in God's word that those who have been awakened by the risen sun, they must now see what time it is by sitting in the light. 
They must see that it is time to love others with a sense of urgency and obligation. But not only that, it is time to take off our pajamas and put on something else. It's time to change our clothes. Look with me now at Romans 13, verse 11. He says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Paul's telling us the time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your sleep. He's using sleep here as a metaphor for spiritual complacency and apathy and indifference. He's saying, for those who have believed in the risen Son of God, you cannot follow Christ as sleepwalkers. Don't we know what time it is? It's time to wake up. Oh, church, it's time to wake up from our complacency and apathy and indifference. It's time to be vigilant and alert and diligent. The sun is not setting. It is rising. And again, he's giving us here this sense of urgency. I hope you're seeing that and feeling that. I want you to have that sense of urgency because it's here in the text. But let's acknowledge the elephant in the room. That Paul wrote this almost 2,000 years ago. For almost 2,000 years, the church has been called to wake up, to have a sense of urgency. Most Christians, you read church history and, and, and you read history, most Christians have lived with a sense that believing that Jesus is coming back in their lifetime. Is that Okay, is that right? Well, let's first understand that Paul is calling us to wake up, not hurry up. Paul is calling us to wake up, not hurry up. He's calling us to have a sense of urgency, but not a sense of panic that leads to foolishness and withdrawal from the world and just a frenetic, crazed response. And this is a common theme we see throughout Scripture. In fact, in Jeremiah, God speaking through the prophet to his people in exile, he tells them that they will soon one day return to the land that he promised them. He's going to take them out of exile, return them to the land. Okay, great. Does that mean they just forget about what they're doing then in exile? No. He says, in the meantime, you should plant gardens. You should build houses. You should have kids. And you should seek the welfare of the city that you are living in, in exile. There's a sense of urgency, but there's not a sense of panic and hastiness. And I think the legendary basketball coach, John Wooden, gets at one of these undertones of Scripture when he tells his players to be quick, but don't hurry. 
Have you guys heard that phrase before? Be quick, but don't hurry. My high school basketball coach loved to tell us that all the time. Be quick, but don't hurry. Be quick. Have a sense of urgency. Play like the clock is counting down. Play like you might not to play, play like you might not get to play this game again. But don't hurry. Don't panic. Don't get frenetic. That's what you try to do to the other team. You try to get the other team all sped up and out of, out of sorts. Be quick, but don't hurry. I ended up remembering that phrase and having to repeat it to myself when I used to work in the ER, those times where you wanted to just speed up and freak out, to take a deep breath and say, be quick, but don't hurry. Be quick, but don't hurry. I think that is good advice. It's not scripture, but I think it's good advice. And I think there's wisdom for the church as well. As we've looked throughout history, as we've looked about how God has instructed his people, he's always given his people. There should be a sense of urgency always for the people of God. But there should not be a sense of panic. There should not be a frenetic pace about us. We should be quick to work, but then we're also going to take days off. We're also going to rest. We're also going to retreat. We're also going to enjoy fellowship. But it is right for the people of God to have a sense of urgency. Because let's understand this, that while we do not know the day or the hour of Christ's return, we do know that human lives are relatively short and oftentimes wasted. Human lives are relatively short and oftentimes wasted. And therefore, we must, each of us, have a sense of urgency in how we love and in how we live. But let us not have a sense of panic that leads to foolishness or withdrawing from neglecting the city that we live in right now. No, let's keep planting churches. Let's keep having kids. Let's keep discipling one another. Let's keep seeking the welfare of the city so that if the Lord should tarry, our kids and grandkids will have healthy churches to go to so that they can hear preachers preach the word and tell them to wake up and live and love in the light of Christ. And here's another truth. While, yes, we don't know the day of his return, I can truly say that the day of his return is closer now than it ever has been. In fact, that's maybe even outdated. It's closer now than it ever has been. Or now. You see what I'm doing? Give me a head nod that you're still with me. Okay. Wake up, church. Wake up. The return of Christ is closer now than it ever has been. And therefore, it is time to cast off the things that we thought we can get away with in the dark. Aren't there certain things that people wrongly think they can get away with in the dark? He lists some of them here. He says, hey, if Christ has risen and his light has shined on you, then it's time to be done with these deeds of darkness. It's time to change. It's time to put them away. 
He says to cast these off. He's, look, look what he says to cast off. He says, cast off orgies and drunkenness, sexual immorality and sensuality. Right? These are sins that people go to for fleeting pleasure. And yet what they find is that they are never completely satisfied. And they need more and more And yet they will never find what they are looking for because their deepest need will only be found in Christ. And therefore, Christian, do not turn back to these for comfort or for pleasure or to numb the pains of life. They will not give you what you think they will give you. All they will do is enslave you and cause you to forget what time it is. All they will do is cause you to fall into a spiritual slumber of complacency and indifference and apathy. Oh, you might still go through the motions of a Christian, but you will lack any real spiritual power, any sweet communion and fellowship with God, for you are grieving the Spirit. And your love for God and for others will start to fade. You'll lack any sense of urgency of loving others and helping others live in the light because you yourself are still loving to live in darkness. So church, if you are currently struggling with any sort of substance abuse, struggling with lust or pornography or any type of sexual immorality, and if you've been waiting for the right time to stop, maybe waiting for a word from God that now is the time to change, waiting for an opening to to bring it up to a pastor or a city group leader or a friend, well, here it is. What more could he say to you than what he has already said? It's time to change. And it's the grace and the joy and the love that he offers to us through the gospel that empowers us to cast these things off. Let's cast them off today. The sun has risen and will continue to rise. It's time to cast these things off. You need to bring that sin out into the light. You need to confess it, turn from it, and receive forgiveness from God and others. Now look what else he includes here, which are just as important to cast off as sexual immorality and drunkenness. He includes quarreling and jealousy. Quarreling and jealousy. Someone who is prone to quarreling and jealousy is in just as much of a need to be woken up this morning as someone living in sexual immorality and drunkenness. But these can fly under the radar because they are a bit more acceptable amongst church folk. Now, why does he include quarreling and jealousy together? Well, they oftentimes go together. Most quarrels that spring up among us can be traced back to someone's jealousy. James 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels 
And what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Oh, church, we are to cast these things off. Some of you might need to bring your jealousy and propensity to quarrel out into the light this morning and confess it and turn from it and receive forgiveness from God and others. We are to cast these things off, and God's Word says to make no provision for them. That most literally means don't give them any forethought. Don't let any thought in your head start to lead you down those paths. You see, that's where you can, by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, cast these things off and be victorious over them. It starts with your thoughts. What are you thinking about? What are you believing? What are you setting your mind on? You've got to stop it there. Don't make any provision for those sinful desires. You've got to stop it in your thoughts. Don't think that you can just play with something in your thought life and it not come back to bite you and burn you in the end. But here's the thing, church. These are impossible to cast off unless we are also putting something else on in their place. I remember one time before a basketball game, uh, we typically wore warm-ups over our uniforms, and we had, we had pants as warm-ups warm on over our shorts. And as we got done warming up, one of my teammates right before the game, as he was about to take his warm-up pants off, realized that he had forgotten to put his shorts on underneath. And thankfully, he realized this before anything drastic happened, because I'm not sure how you come back from that in high school. I think you just have to move out of state, probably. But he realized his mistake, and he went back in the locker room and realized that in order to take these off, he had to put something else on. You see, church, these deeds of darkness, they are impossible to cast off unless we are also putting something else on. And apart from the work of Christ, people who are just trying to be, quote-unquote, better people, they'll cast one of these things off only to replace it with another sin. Or even worse, and I really mean even worse, they'll cast one of these things off to replace it with self-righteousness or a prideful religious zeal. but it's time to change our clothes, church. It's time to cast off these deeds of darkness, but it is also time to put something on. Look what we are first told to put on in verse 12, Romans 13, verse 12. He says, put on the armor of light. The armor of light. What do we learn in that statement? Well, we learn that we are, we are waking up for a battle, We have not been woken up in peacetime. Christ has risen, and therefore we know the war has been won, but there are still more battles to be fought until he returns. We are to put on armor, church. Paul, in writing to the Thessalonians, he goes into a little bit more detail 
about this armor, as he does in Ephesians 6, which is probably the more popular one that you've, you've heard before, speaking of the armor of God. Uh, but 1 Thessalonians 5, it, it much more parallels the train of thought that Paul has here in Romans 13. See if you can see the parallels, but also the little bit more detail he puts into this armor of light. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 6, he says, So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Here he speaks of faith, love, and hope as being a part of this armor of light, faith, love, and hope. Well, the question then is, who are we to put our faith in? Who is to be our greatest love? And who is, who is ultimately our greatest hope? And that question is answered for us back in Romans 13 as we now go down to verse 14. He says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in one sense, believers have already put on Christ. In writing to the Galatians, Paul says in Galatians 3.27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You see, in writing to the Galatians, Paul is getting at more the idea of the believer's justification. That through faith in Christ, you've been united to Christ. His righteousness now clothes you. And yes, and amen to that. Yes, that is true. There was a moment in your life by grace through faith that you were justified. You were declared righteous. But here in Romans, Paul, he has taught us about justification. He's now getting at our sanctification, our growth in holiness, our becoming more like Jesus. Yes, if you have put your faith in Christ for your life and salvation, in a sense, you have already put on Christ. But in another sense, you will need to daily wake up and keep putting on Christ. You will need to continually cast off the desires of the sinful flesh and keep putting on Christ. As often as you wake up and put on clothes, that is how often you will need to wake up and put on Christ. Which, what a, what a glorious illustration Paul has given us that will remind us each and every day, at least for those most days you are putting clothes on. And sometimes we as pastors, we like to try to come up with an illustration that will help connect the dots and help God's truth stick with you. But here God's word has given us a divinely inspired illustration. When Paul says to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, he is painting us the picture of getting dressed. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, every time we get dressed, we can think about the truth that the sun has risen. We've been awakened for battle. We owe love to those around us. And we are to cast off the deeds of darkness and put on Christ. 
well, what does it mean to put on Christ? Maybe I can help us understand that by thinking through some of the reasons why we put on clothes. We first put on clothes as a covering to cover our nakedness and shame. We put on clothes to protect us from either the sun, the heat, the cold. We clothe ourselves to protect ourselves from the elements of the world. We put on clothes to put beauty on display. Now, this can get sinful if we're trying to draw attention to ourselves or trying to show off our wealth with what we can afford or if we haven't taken modesty into consideration. I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying you typically pick clothes that you think look pleasant or at the very least are covering your unpleasantness. And so you put clothes on to, to some degree, put beauty on display. Many times we put clothes on because what we are wearing, it identifies us and gives us our identity and purpose. Think about someone putting on a a sports jersey with the name of their team on it. Think about some of you going to work. You have a certain uniform that you have to wear. In the hospital, you might be wearing scrubs or you might be wearing a white coat. There's things that you can put on that identify who you are and what you are doing. We put on clothes to cover us, to protect us, to put beauty on display, to identify us and give us our purpose. Church, what are you putting on when you wake up in the morning? Are you putting on yourself? Are you putting on clothes of your own making? things that you have made or done that you think will cover your sin and shame and protect you, that will make you beautiful and give you your identity? Or are you putting on Christ? If the sun has risen and his light has shined on you, it's time to put on Christ. We get to put on Christ. And oh, what a covering Christ is for us, church. Every morning when you get dressed, don't put yourself on, put Christ on, who not only covers our sin and shame, but heals our sin and shame. Put on Christ. Put on Christ and let him be your protection against the attacks of the enemy and the harshness of the world. Nothing in your own making will protect you. Put on Christ. He will protect you. Put Christ on and show the world how good and glorious and how beautiful he is. How valuable and worthy he is. Listen, our desire, I think we all have this desire to some degree, our desire to be beautiful and attractive, it is only satisfied when we put on Christ. Put on Christ and may he give you your identity and purpose as sons and daughters of God. Oh, church, put on the armor of light. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's time to wake up. It's time to change. It's time to cast off the deeds of darkness. It's time to put on Christ. 
It's time for your faith to rest upon him and him alone. It's time for him to be your greatest love. It's time for his return to be your ultimate hope. Do not trust in any other thing or person to cover your sin and shame. Do not trust in anyone or anything other than Christ to protect you. Do not trust anything or anyone else to make you beautiful. And do not trust anything or anyone else to give you your sense of identity and purpose. Only Christ. Only Christ. Wake up, church. It's time to wake up. It's time to change. It's time to love one another with a sense of urgency and obligation as God has loved us. It's time to cast off deeds of darkness and put on Christ. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Let us be quick but not hurry. Let us awake from our slumber, apathy, and complacency, and let us live and love as ones who have been awakened by the risen Son. Let's pray.